so yeah that's uh it's just like that we're good to go man i uh i want to start off by by thanking you for coming on uh first of all um having listened to parts of your story online through other podcasts you've lived a, a crazy life um and i know some of the things that you've experienced aren't easy to talk about so first off thanks for coming on and being willing to share your story and secondly also thank you for your service um when i was younger I never understood what that actually meant. Um, I grew up kind of having a negative disposition towards the military uh, just because of my surroundings, the people I grew up with. Uh, it was I did not have a very good image of the military. And now that I'm older, I'm 38 now, um, I realized I probably would have fit in very well in the military. <laughs> and so <laughs> kind of missed the boat on that one. But uh, I, I definitely respect what you do. Um, and so thank you for your service. And I do mean that from the heart, not just saying that as a formality. Um, so now that that's out of the way, I wanted to uh, just kind of give you a, a quick minute to introduce yourself to my audience, um, kind of uh, your name, you know, where you're from and uh, kind of your organization, introduce that a little bit, and then we'll dive straight into your story. No, I appreciate it, Rob. And thanks for having me. Um, it's it was difficult the first time I started telling these stories, but it's become more and more therapeutic. Mm -hmm. And I also really appreciate the opportunity to just push my message out there, hoping that it's encouraging other veterans with similar experiences to do the same, because just getting it out in the open and talking about it with people has been a, kind of a stress reliever for me, to be honest with you. Sure. Um, so I, I do appreciate the opportunity to be on your show here. Um, my name is Daniel Arcan. I'm originally from a small town in Minnesota. Um, and to be honest with you, and I, I said this to, uh, a group I was with in therapy, um, they were going around the circle telling their stories. And a lot of them had a lot of childhood trauma and they all started looking at me like, are you going to talk about your childhood? And I told them, I kind of feel bad up being here at all because I had a great childhood. My trauma didn't really start until I went to combat. <laughs> um, but I mean, I had a very loving mother and father. They're both still alive. They're still happily married, very supportive. Um, I have a younger brother. He's about three and a half years younger than me. Um, he's actually up in Canada, finishing his PhD in ancient philosophy. Um, so we are obviously very different people, but he's a good kid. Um, went to high school. And I mean, ever since I was three years old, my, my goal was to join the Marine Corps and be a great Marine. And uh, I feel like I accomplished that goal until I retired just here last fall. Nice. Yeah. I, uh, I've spoken to quite a few veterans uh, from different branches and first off, I want to say the best thing that I feel like that I appreciate about the the veteran community is the opportunity to just be myself because you guys have a very particular sense of what is funny. Um, <laughs> and, and it can be very fucking dark. So, and, and I appreciate that, you know, like, um, I've just heard some like crazy war stories to where the story ends up with 
10 dudes sitting around a fire eating an MRE, laughing their asses off, and half of them have bullet wounds and a dude's missing his foot. The best night of their lives, you know? So it's like, I, I feel like that kind of, that atmosphere is something that, that I would have enjoyed. I'm not enjoyed by any means, but like I can kind of appreciate that for sure. So do not feel like you got to like hold back on, on your language or anything like that. I, I just want you to be as real as you can be. No, I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. And so, but it is crazy how you grew up with like a very Midwest, you know, standard childhood, like Minnesota, you know, like once it starts to get cold, you got like a bunch of like stews in the pots and, <laughs> you know, like potatoes and yep. steak every night. And it's just, it's the Midwest thing. Like I'm from Michigan. Um, so yeah. Okay. I went to school up in Marquette at Northern um so i kind of understand that vibe but traditionally it seems like people that end up in the military have had some sort of like traumatic experience or maybe not traumatic experience but maybe just not the the right guidance um and so the military is kind of like the backfall that people choose to go to to try to make something of their life where you said at three like yeah what what was it about the military that as a three-year-old you, <laughs> you decided you wanted to be a marine and i also want to preface that uh it's been my experience through conversations of friends that the the marines are you guys are given the shittiest jobs with the shittiest equipment and no one gives a fuck you're just hey here's four bullets some duct tape and a rope <laughs> I need you to go take care of this problem and you're just okay you know like yes sir like roger that and you're sent out yeah um, that's something we kind of take pride in <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, so and i i understand you didn't have that like thought process at three um but let's kind of start digging into you know why you chose the military uh why you chose the marines and especially at a young age when most kids are wanting to be you know, like astronauts, NFL players are just yeah. playing in the mud with their trucks. So, yeah, let's dig into that a little bit. Yeah, so my dad was a Marine. Um, he did three years right towards the end of the Vietnam War. Um, and honestly, I think it was just I, I saw some pictures of him in his uniform with the guys and everything when I was very young. And whatever it is, the way my brain chemistry works or whatever the case is, um, it just clicked with me. It resonated with me. And my dad still has this project in a file of his. But when I was in preschool at about three and a half, it was right after my brother was born. Um, we, they all wanted to, the teachers wanted to do this project at the preschool. What are you going to be when you grow up and we can take it home to our parents. And my project was, I want to be a Marine like my dad. And, uh, the teacher, from what my parents tell me, the teacher said, oh, you mean like a G.I. Joe? And my response as a three and a half year old was, no, I mean, like a Marine. <laughs> and it just <laughs> and it just never changed throughout all of, all of um, elementary, junior high, high school. That was always my focus. And to your point, I mean, our junior high graduation that we did, um, I had a friend, Matt who got up and said, I want to be in the WWF and be a professional wrestler. And we had the astronauts and everything, but mm -hmm. I mean, my, my story and my plan never changed. And when I was, I think a sophomore in high school, 
the guidance counselors were going around trying to help people prep for what they want to do after high school. I said, I'm going to be a Marine. They said, what is plan B? And I, I looked at him and I'm like, there is no plan B. I'm going to be a Marine. <laughs> no, that was it. Yeah. I, I feel like it's strange that we rely on the military so heavily in our society and we don't actually put that in the forefront of our mind of like thinking that we rely on you so much that it seems like in the education system and society as a whole kind of puts like the military is something that you do if you can't make it somewhere else like the plan b is the military so for you to have plan b be the plan a it it probably threw them off quite a bit um so what was your high school experience like knowing that you were going into the military, specifically the Marines? Were you training? Like, did you have some sort of like physical routine that you would go through to try to be ready for boot camp and like hear war stories from your dad and mentally get ready for it? Or it wasn't particularly it wasn't particularly structured. I, w- I will say I was blessed enough to have a mom that's a personal trainer. Um, she had her own business and she'd been a personal trainer for 35 years i think before she retired so she was definitely given guidance on the physical and nutritional portion of everything but i mean it was simple as uh it was about four and a half miles to school and i'd put my backpack on and i'd walk every day rather than take the bus you know um which isn't necessarily the most fun thing in minnesota winters but you gotta harden up a little bit right (laughs) um and then it, it was a lot of it was just being community oriented. Um, the whole the whole mindset in my brain was I want to join the Marines out of the principle of what they stand for. I, I want to help people that can't help themselves. I want to make sure people that can't defend themselves can be defended by somebody. And that was that was my vision of the whole thing. Um, so like when 9-11 happened, when September 11th happened, I was a junior in high school, I think. Um I went door to door and raised, raised as much money as I could. And it turned out that the governor came to visit our high school because our high school did okay in terms of raising money for New York. But I had raised, I think, a quarter of what the high school had raised for that fundraiser. I, oh, I just, wow. just going door to door saying, I, they need your help. Can, can you help us out? Yeah. Um, I rate, I think I raised like $2,000 or something like that. Just going door to door, knocking on people's house, uh, front doors um it it was the principle to me so i mean i was going for runs and practicing my pull-ups and push-ups and making my bed when when i wasn't being a sassy teenager you know (laughs) sure um but it was more i I was more focused on the mental preparation for it and i think it worked that the night we got to boot camp the drill instructors were screaming and trying to disorient everybody and I got in a little bit of trouble because I had a big smile on my face. I was so excited to be there. <laughs> yeah, it's strange hearing your story of because uh, it sounds like you were very disciplined growing up. Uh, the, that kind of seems like the theme of like, you know, you had your support system of your family and you had a goal. And so you disciplined yourself for the goal. And in hearing that now, it's very strange, especially where I live. Um, I live in, in Ann Arbor. And so that those stories don't exist anymore. It, it seems like 
nobody is willing to want to be the protector anymore. Everybody wants to be the victim. Um, and getting to boot camp almost seems like a reality check, like a slap in the face. And like people are getting softer as the generations go on. So uh, before we dive into a little bit, I'm just kind of curious as to your perspective on how things have kind of gotten a little softer and even like the military has kind of like lessened what they expect out of people. How do you feel about that coming from, you know, where you came from? Well, I'll, I'll start with this. Um, I, I will say, I feel like I was fairly disciplined if I saw the purpose towards my goal of being a Marine. Um, the fact of the matter is in high school, if I didn't feel like a class was relevant, um, I, I slacked quite a bit, particularly academically. And interestingly enough, I went back and actually apologized to a math teacher of mine um, because I'm thinking, what do I need geometry and algebra for? I'm going to be an infantryman in the Marine Corps. And then when I went on to start going to some more advanced schools, I wound up being an instructor for explosives and demolitions for a while. That is all algebra. I went to some advanced long range shooting courses, um, all geometry. <laughs> so I've, nice. I, I wish I would have known now what I'd known then, which I'm sure everybody says, but, uh, the discipline was very narrow sighted. I wish it would have been a little broader when it was that age, but absolutely it was more about protecting than being a victim. Um, in terms of what I'm seeing now, I am hyper-focused on how my son is going to do this. I'll just say it like that. Every day when he comes home from school, what did you learn at school today? Let's talk about it. And he's only in kindergarten. I want to develop the habit. Um, first thing when he wakes up in the morning, he makes his bed, uh, brushes his teeth. We have, we have a routine, and it's just about creating the basic discipline. I was blessed enough to have a mom and dad that blessed uh, that that taught me a lot of work ethic, and that is what I really appreciate for them. Is, is just if you have a job that needs to get done, you do it to the best of your ability. One, so you don't have to do it again, but two, because it's what people are going to remember about you and your reputation, whether you like it or not. Mm. So I don't know. I I. I I have some speculations, um, but I don't necessarily know why it's getting us off track as it is right now. It's kind of a shame, yeah. but I'm focused on my kid making sure he's raised right. Yeah, that's. I feel like that's kind of like the perfect answer in all reality. It's all we can really do is focus on ourselves and our community that we create and just making sure that we can produce, you know, like the best children uh, for the future. So. It's definitely amazing to hear that you're kind of doing the same thing your parents are doing and passing down morals and ethics and, you know, just discipline and not in like a violent way, but like, you know, everyday discipline. I feel like those things aren't really taught anymore. They're just kind of expected to for people to know what they are. And, and it's just not the case. So that's really good to hear that, you know, there's still men out there that are acting as men and, and creating young men. Um, so speaking of men, you went from uh, high school to where you're you're considered a kid, you know. Um, yep. And did you graduate and like actually walk across stage? So I remember hearing about something about that. You didn't want to walk uh, for graduation. I, 
I had no desire to attend my graduation. I actually, I had the credits to get my high school diploma a semester early. So I left. Um, it, I, I had what I needed done and I wanted to go to boot camp. So that's what I did. <laughs> wow. so I think I actually wound up graduating. Uh, what was it? End of January, beginning of February. And okay. just started talking to the recruiter about get me out as soon as you can. So were you 17 at the time or were you 18 when you, I was 17 when I, okay. Yeah. So you were still, you're pretty much a kid. Yeah. Um, yeah. It seems like you're, you're a kid. And so you're like 20 mid twenties almost. It feels like, and even in my, I, think so. I feel like a kid still. So <laughs> you never really know when you grow up, but what is that transition like going from, you know, like a very safe community in Minnesota to where you have like these loving parents and, you've trained your whole life to, to leading up to this boot camp, you get off the bus and it's chaotic and people are yelling and screaming at you and you're calm. But what is that feeling like of you finally made it in, you are a Marine now, is there anxiety leading up to it of what you're about to go do? And also knowing that nine 11 has happened and kind of what your future looks like. You know, I, I don't think anxiety is the right word. It was pure excitement. It really was. I was so ecstatic to be there and get started. Um, and I remember they had a couple of TVs um, in the chow hall where we ate, ate our meals when we weren't in the field during boot camp. I remember watching the Iraq war unfolding on TV. And the only disappointing thing while I was in boot camp was I'm watching this happen on TV and I'm thinking in my head, like, Oh my God, I'm going to miss the whole war. <laughs> I, I, I thought I wasn't going to, I, I thought I wasn't going to get my opportunity. It's funny. We, we talk about this particularly in the Marine Corps all the time. I'm sure the other services do too, but the older guys that have seen combat are always telling the younger guys, you know, be careful what you wish for. But the younger guys that have just joined, they're just chomping at the bit to go to combat. Uh, and it's, they equate it to, you know, playing on the varsity football team in high school, but never actually getting an opportunity to play. Mm. You know, it, it can be a huge disappointment. Um, and it's just funny thinking back to my whole career. I, I wound up being one of the older guys that's telling these young kids, like, I understand you want to play in the game, but let's be careful what we wish for. Cause it might not be what you think, you know? Yeah. yeah. And we're definitely going to dive into some of that and kind of elaborate a little bit. Um, so how was boot camp for you? Did it was it difficult or was it just a, an obstacle that you had to get through to be able to go to combat? I would say my my dad in particular had prepped me so well for what to expect. I wouldn't call it difficult. Um, there were the hardest part about boot camp in my mind was you have to maintain the discipline twenty four seven or you're going to get messed up by the drill instructors that's really what it boiled down to and i do remember i had one lazy day where i just woke up that morning and the first thing you do when you wake up in camp is get online you have they literally count down very quickly from 10 where you have to go from being dead asleep to standing at attention in front of your bed um and there was one morning where i just wasn't feeling it and i tried to hide behind my bed and the drill instructor caught me, and that was that was a rough morning for me. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what happens when you get caught hiding from the drill instructor? I mean, they so they call it 
uh, incentive training. They're incentivizing you to not do dumbass things anymore. Uh, <laughs> but it, it's usually physical physical incentives that teach you a lesson where by the end of it, you have a pool of sweat under you and hopefully you don't throw up at some point. <laughs> um, that's the, the day in, in question here. Um, they had me grab a couple of rags in each hand and uh, they had me do, they call them inchworms up and down the squad bay, basically mopping the, uh, mopping the squad bay with my hands doing push-ups after each sweep. And then they got bored with that. So they had another recruit grab my legs and actually started using me as a human mop. <laughs> um, they got bored with that. So then they decided to make me sing a Michael Jackson song while I was being used as a human mop. I mean, the whole thing is, to, it's hilarious. Um, yeah. The best way I've heard boot camp described is it's the most fun you never want to have again. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, so what schools did you, were you going through, um, like after boot camp, you leave boot camp, and then it's my assumption you kind of go through like more specialized training uh, for kind of what your job is going to entail. Um, what was that like, that transition of like, all right, you're out of boot camp, and now it's, you know, like you're in, and now you just got to get through these courses and kind of learn yeah. your, your specialized training. What was that transition like in kind of going through that whole process? So the uh, the next thing I did, I was an infantryman uh, as I enlisted. So next thing I did was I went to school of infantry. Um, that's where they just, they teach you just enough, I would say, to be a moving target uh, in, in any kind of combat situation. <laughs> like you won't just stand there and completely freeze and you learn a lot more about manipulating your weapon, um, how to move as a team. They really build you from there. Um, and, and just prepare you to go to your first unit. And then once you're done with school infantry, which is, I believe it's about two months long, um, then all the specialized schools from there, it, it's really part of its volunteer basis. Who would like to go to this kind of training? But it's also incentivized. Like the better you do at your basic job, the more opportunities you'll have to go to some specialized schools. Okay. So I had a lot of opportunity to go to um, some various advanced shooter packages, um, both for close quarters combat and for long range shooting. Um, I did a decent, a fair amount of explosives and demolitions training that I, um, I hate to say it like this because I don't necessarily like to toot my own horn, but I did fairly well with the explosives and demolitions. Um and a lot of leadership training, too. As soon as you hit your first unit, they want to start sending you to leadership seminars where they start out with very basic leadership principles and start building on it. So they want to see who has potential to be a career uh, a career person mm -hmm. and who could advance and actually provide the kind of mentorship and guidance that's constantly filtering out of the ranks. Sure. So you knew from from the very beginning that you didn't want to just go in and do three, four years, like one contract. You wanted to make this a longer term career. I, I did. I, I actually when I got done with boot camp, as soon as you finish boot camp, you get 10 days of vacation time before you go to your next your, your specialty school. 
And when I got home for that 10 days of vacation after boot camp, I went back to my recruiter's office and I said, how do I just do 20 years? Is there a way to just sign up for 20? (laughs) He's just kind of chuckling. Why don't we get through the first four and then we'll take it from there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's crazy for, for me personally to hear, just knowing kind of where the story turns you know, from, from this point on that this is something that you want to do for 20 years. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's just dive right into, uh, to this story kind of becoming a little bit more serious and getting into your first deployment, uh, um, kind of where, where was your first deployment and what was that, that feeling like of, all right, ready to man up time, you know, it's it, green light go. Yeah. And you take off where, where exactly do you go and what is your kind of your job at that point? So the first several deployments were to Iraq. Um, and it was all over the place everywhere from, uh, really everywhere from camp Fallujah all the way to the border of Syria in, in an area, um, known as Al Qaeda. Um, and that, yeah, that's, that's where, <laughs> that's where my adulthood started, I guess I would say. Um, God. So what do you see when you first step off the plane and you're, you're in Iraq? Uh, what do you like, what's that visual image like and kind of like the, the anxiety or feelings that you're experiencing just stepping off the plane and you're in your, your squadron, your command. I'm not sure exactly what it's called. So sorry for being disrespectful. No, no, that's okay. But, yeah, kind of walk me through just that first day of stepping off the plane and you are now a Marine. You need to be the man that you expect to be. What, yeah, what is that like? Walk us through that a little bit if you can. So the first time you get off the plane, I would say it's, again, it's the excitement. Very similar to boot camp. You don't really know what you're in for, but you feel like you're prepared. Um, so it's excitement. Like I'm finally getting in. You, you really do. You think I'm finally getting in the game and it takes you a while before you realize that it's not a game. (laughs) Um, and and, I mean, particularly in Iraq, it looked ancient. I, I, I don't know how else to describe it. It looked ancient. There was actually, and I still have some sand from this spot. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that or not. I, I'm pretty sure I was allowed to take it home, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> there's in the place that we got off the plane. Um, there's actually uh, a old well, like one of the old crank a bucket up with a rope kind of well. Yeah, yeah. That uh, there's a plaque in front of it that biblical Abraham supposedly established that well. Like, it's just ancient and all, I hate to say it like this because of all the stories that are going to follow up, follow this, but it almost was a spiritual experience. Like I am going and walking biblical paths, right? (laughs) Some of the first humans walked these paths and I get to see it and experience it. Um, And then rockets come in and, and you stop thinking about that. And you're like, oh my God. I hope I don't die. <laughs> yeah. So it, it all changes very rapidly, so I would say. So going through boot camp, I'm assuming that, you know, in the barracks, you you formed some pretty close bonds and relationships with some people and, and you're shipped yeah. over with like this, this group of like close knit guys. 
did having that those type of relationships um motivate you a little bit more to kind of like make sure that you're very precise at your job and and kind of your actions moving forward or did it make you feel like you had to be more of a watch out and protective over them just so I will say in terms of in terms of the camaraderie and the feeling of friendship that you had or that I had, um, it was exactly what I expected and exactly what I was hoping for. Um, th- those gr- those guys will. They'll do anything for you. I- I'm confident if I ever needed those guys, I could have a platoon raised inside of them and-, and they would do whatever I needed them to do. Like I, th- those are the kind of connections. I've- mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of loyalty and friendship, I feel like, especially in today's day and age, you can't even buy that. Like that's hard to find. Um, the downside to that is, especially at the early stages of the Iraq war and when Afghanistan started heating up again, it's that much harder when you lose people. I mean, you, you have, you have people that, I mean, not even for all intents and purposes in actuality, they are family because of the things that you do together and the things you go through together, every time one of them passes, you lost a brother. And I don't mean like, Hey brother, how you doing? They, they, they may as well have been my family. Sure. And burying them is something that I still dream about on a regular basis. And it's terrible. Yeah. It's, that's something that I've always envied from the, the military community is that camaraderie you guys have. And, and, uh, I was in a fraternity, not to, to compare that to uh, the military. Just give me a second here. And sure. we, we gave each other nicknames. Um, part of it was so that way, like if we were at a party and we did something stupid, nobody knew our real name. Everybody knew our nicknames. So we could kind of like get away with some stuff, you know, and just some dumb college fraternity bullshit. But the same thing sort of applies to the military in the sense that it's been my experience. A lot of you guys have nicknames or you'll do something fucked up and it's like, Oh, you're pumpkin, you know, and and (laughs) it sticks with you. So did you have a nickname or were you given a nickname throughout like, you know, this, these first couple deployments that stuck with you at all? I don't know that I necessarily can think of a nickname that I had. Um, No, I, I honestly, I can't think of an actual nickname. I, there was a group of guys that called me lumpy, um, for a while. Now that I'm thinking about it, I had these big knots on the top of my head. Um, and on your, on, on deployments, it's a lot, a lot of times it's easier to just shave your head. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't have to worry about hygiene and everything. So I had this knot sticking. So they just call me lumpy. Um, <laughs> but other than, I, I think that was the only nickname I can really think of um, until I got older and then people just started calling me old man. But yeah, I mean, you're an old, you're an old man in the early, late twenties. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I asked that question because I've heard your, uh, your interview before to where you were on your first deployment, you, you encountered a tribe and you got a, a nickname Mikado. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So that was actually, I think that was, what was that? My fourth or fifth deployment. Okay. Um, and that was actually in Africa. Um, okay. Yeah. So that was in Liberia and I had done some, 
um, while I was there. Uh, we were there to train and advise the, the local military in Liberia. Uh, they had just gone through a coup uh, and we were trying to help stabilize their military so it wouldn't happen again. Uh, but the local village that we were around, very poor, the poorest I've ever seen, puts Iraq to shame. Wow. Um, the village had never had a schoolhouse before. Um, most of them didn't have running water. Nobody had electricity. Um, but I did a lot of volunteer work just helping that village out in my free time while I was there when I wasn't working with the soldiers. And when I got ready to leave, the village actually threw a uh, threw a party and went through a whole ceremony and made me part of the tribe. It was one of the greatest honors of my life. And my tribal name for that that village is Makado. Um, okay. The translation would be, um, I see you, as in I see your soul and it's good, basically. Um, so, yeah, that's not necessarily a nickname. That's actually a, my, okay. my Africa name. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's really cool though to have an experience like that. It's I'm actually kind of jealous of. Hopefully, one day I'll be able to get to do something like that. Um, I don't want to do something that hopefully we can talk about next is uh, the experiences that you had in Iraq. Um, you've you've spoken, you've been pretty verbal about uh, your drinking, um, especially in the military. It seems like a lot of the guys in the military that have uh, experienced combat, if they weren't fighting, they were drinking. Um, or taking Ambien to try to, to try to just to sleep, you know, the, the yeah. images that you see are very hard to, uh, to deal with when you're in the fight. Um, trying to see, I, I don't really, I don't want to be too direct and, and offensive or anything, but can you speak a little bit about what kind of started the, the drinking and everything? Um, kind of some of your firsthand experiences, like, oh shit, this is, this is real and needing to numb yourself and kind of what that environment was like surrounding yourself. Was it just you that was drinking alone or was it like a group of guys kind of, what was that whole process like? I, I was prior to my first deployment to Iraq, I was never much uh, on drinking or anything. It wasn't really a thing for me. Um, we got back from my first deployment. And we did our, our memorial service for the guys that, that had died on that deployment. Um, and the way we do our memorial services is actually, it's a beautiful ceremony, but it's gut-wrenching, right? Um, so they have the rifle with bayonet and the Kevlar and dog tags stuck in a sandbag. And the whole unit lines up in front and the... Uh, the company first sergeant, the senior enlisted guy, does what's called the final roll. And he calls off names. And as he calls off names, the people that are there are going to say present. And then he'll call off, he'll call off the name of somebody that died. And they basically go through a ceremony of he's not here anymore. Um, and they do that for everybody that died. And, my first few deployments, there there were longer ceremonies. Um, and after that first ceremony, I went out by myself and a bottle of tequila and got a hotel room. And, and that's when the drinking started. It, it was like I couldn't sleep. I had no adrenaline rush anymore. 
they were the, the adrenaline is the most powerful drug in the world. I've never done heroin or anything like that, but I, I, I would imagine adrenaline would put it to shame. The, the adrenaline of getting shot at and almost dying. I there's times that I actually miss it, um, but I didn't have that. I'm thinking constantly about these guys that I'll never see again. In some cases, I'd go out shopping, going to going to the liquor store, going to the mall to buy it, buy a new shirt or a new pair of shoes or whatever the case is. And there were there were moments that I'd actually see these guys walking around the mall. And there there was one instance in Palm Springs where I was out shopping. Swore I saw this friend, my good friend of mine, and I actually ran up to this guy and grabbed him on the shoulder and kind of turns around like, "Who are you?" I'm sorry, I thought you were somebody else. Um, you can't sleep. You want to avoid fighting as best as you can. It doesn't always work. Um, alcohol was the drug of choice. I'm really trying to uh, make that as eloquent as possible, but it's a little bit more <laughs> yeah. than that. Yeah, no. So, just for a little context, I uh, I went to rehab uh, May fifteenth, twenty eighteen. Um, I had a very traumatic childhood experience. Uh, dude that beat the shit out of me almost every day. He was in the military. Um, that's kind of where the negative um, information came from. And I, I chose alcohol as well. Um, it was it was just readily available. You can get it anywhere, especially in Michigan. You can go to gas stations and pick it up. Um, and then had a couple surgeries and the painkillers came in. And so when those came in, it kind of, they did what they did. They, they yeah. kill the pain and it doesn't have to be physical either. You know, um, yeah. it's, it's that mental, that mental anguish and just kind of like kicking a can down the road of you'll deal with this later type thing. And just, yeah. you just got to get through. So yeah, alcohol saying it's a drug of choice. It, it definitely, it's a drug, you know, alcohol is a yeah. drug as much as any other drug. And there's no need to di like diminish that by any means. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a dark rabbit hole. It's, it's just a very dark hole that people can go down and at yeah. times you need help getting out of it. And, you know, sometimes it's just, it's up to each person. Everybody's just got their own journey. Um, I am curious though, did your drinking in between deployments kind of like bleed into the upcoming deployment of to where you're actually drinking while you're in active duty and, and not active duty, but actually over in Iraq? Is there drinking prevalent going on there or is it just too chaotic for you to even have the time to do it? No, I will say, um, and I've heard stories, but I have never firsthand participated or experienced people drinking while we were on, on deployments. There was too much on the line to be messing around with that. It was mm -hmm. extremely hard when we were in between deployments, but on deployment, it was all business. Okay. That's a, yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Um, yeah, and we so. had the adrenaline to replace it. We didn't need the booze. I mean, every time you stepped outside the outside the building, it's like, well, who needs to get drunk when I might die in a couple of minutes? That's a pretty good rush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, makes sense. It also seems like it's a good reason to have a drink because you might die in a couple yeah, minutes. Well, so. yeah, valid point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, all right, let's, uh, if you're okay with it, I'd like to, uh, you kind of talk a little bit about specific traumatic experiences that you may have had. Um, sure. 
you know, during your first couple deployments, you know, you talk about coming back and having massive amounts of loss, um, which sucks for your job title. It just comes along with it. But those were your family members. Those were your brothers. And you've experienced some things along the lines that you wish you hadn't. Are there any of those stories, uh, you know, like the first kind of like, oh, shit, this is real. This is happening. Do any of those kind of like trigger things in you that that have like stuck with you that you've had to work through and that you're able to kind of regurgitate? The, the one I tell, uh, I shouldn't say the one I tell, the one I always used in as, a, as an example um, for for Marines that want to know like what, what to expect in combat and everything. Um, one is just prior to Christmas on one of my deployments, um, we were out on a, on a vehicle mounted patrol and it was just supposed to be a present patrol. We just wanted everybody to know we're there. So don't mess around. And <clears throat> one of the, the vehicle right in front of me wound up exploding this point in the war um the the roadside bombs that the enemy was using they would lace them with propellant rocket propellant so it would burn ultra hot um and the vehicle just started on fire we tried to run up to the vehicle the closer we got the our own clothes started to smoke like we could not get to the vehicle and so my memory from that Christmas is watching the five people in that vehicle burn alive. Um, and I have a very recurring nightmare. <laughs> um, and it's not the incident itself, but it's those, those five bodies um, will just come and stand over me while I'm sleeping at night and just stare at me. And it, it, it yeah. <clears throat> It puts a lot of pressure on me to live the rest of my life as as well as possible and do something that's going to make a difference. Because all I see is their black eyes looking at me like, you better fucking earn this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I can only imagine how hard it is to to experience those things, let alone to relive them. And then... <laughs> And then retell the stories. I can see how hard it is. So I, I do want to express some gratitude. I, I genuinely appreciate you being able to speak on these things. Um, it's something that I don't know how I would deal with, you know, especially with that kind of living with you for forever. Is Have you done anything to, like I've heard of people doing like going down to Mexico and trying like ayahuasca and, you know, like all of Ibogaine and, and things like that. Have you tried to experience any of those situations or is this or like any therapy or anything? Um, I've done. So my therapy was booze until my son was. Um, my son was a blessing. Um, shortly after he was born, I, I went to a therapist and I basically it, it was just a matter of. I can't keep going this way. <laughs> like for, mm-hmm. for, I don't particularly care what happens to me, but my boy needs a dad, a, a functional dad. Sure. Um, so I need help. 
And that, that was kind of my road to recovery was after my son was born. Um, so, and then I will say I, I've done a lot of therapy, both group and individual, and I still do it. Um, I stay off the bottle now um, for the sake of him. He does not need a drunk for a dad. That, that is not the example I want to set for him. And then every now and then I'll try something uh, out there, right? A um, year and a half ago, I want to say, I have a friend of mine that's uh, Apache, and he invited me to a Native American ceremony where they, no drugs involved or anything like that, but just a different kind of spiritual opportunity with the tribe. And I was very fortunate to be involved in that. And that was, that was very interesting. Um, and then I go to church a lot. I, I read the Bible a lot. I don't particularly care for organized religion myself, but I do, um, I do feel that the Bible has a lot of things that it can teach me. Um, and I'm fortunate enough to have found a church that the pastor doesn't necessarily care if I believe him or not. I'll, I'll just go more for the community and every now and then to get in a nice debate with him about what something really means. Um, yeah. and, and he lets me do that. So <laughs> that's cool though, that you can have those conversations. Yeah. Um, I feel like guys like you that have experienced a, uh, a different form of reality, um, have a different viewpoint on things. Um, like for example, I was wanting to, to ask you about your cousin's necklace that you had made for her. Um, yep. If you could kind of walk us through that story, because the first time I heard it is you were just very calm talking, you know, like nothing happened and hopefully you can share the story. But if that happened to, to somebody in general society, you know, like that would be like a major like focal point in changing of type things. And so just how you can kind of see things differently and be able to have those conversations with a pastor a lot of people may not even want to have those conversations or even have that thought process of, of questioning, you know, something such as the Bible or, or whatnot. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I don't know where that was going, but I was hoping you could kind of elaborate a little bit on, on this, on your cousin's necklace. Um, yeah. After I heard that story, it was, yeah, I, I needed to hear a little bit more and kind of dive into that a little bit. Yeah, so my uh, that, that was on a deployment to Afghanistan. Uh, the, the, there was a point where I was kind of just constantly volunteering for any missions that had come up, whether I was slated to go on them or not. I'd be like, hey, you need an extra guy. Um, and everybody was kind of looking at that as, man, he's just like all about it. Like career Marine. This is the way he's going. He, he's got a lot of knowledge to share, so why not take him? In reality, I, I was kind of, I, I was hope, I, I was challenging them, come and get me. Like, let, let's see if you can just finish me off here. I, I would go on any mission that I could. And How many missions a week are you going on? It really depends on the deployment. There were, there were, there were uh, deployments where you'd go on two or three a day. Um, there were deployments where it'd be one or two a week. It, it really just depended okay. on the deployment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, on that one, we were going to, to do a raid on what we believed was a, uh, a Taliban, uh, storage area. 
Um, they were they were holding weapons and munitions there. Um, before we even pulled up to the raid area, they started opening up on us. And I always made it a point to be the first one out of the vehicle. Um, set the example, right? In, mm -hmm. in reality, I'm kind of hoping they'll just schwack me. <laughs> um, and the machine guns blasting at us and one of the bullets stuck right in the bulletproof glass. Um, I swear I saw that bullet come right at my eye and stick right in the glass, right where my eye was. Um, and you know how your brain can play tricks on you. Who knows if that's the reality of it, but I swear I remember that bullet coming right from my face. We finished that mission, cleared, cleared that area, took care of the business and, uh, the bullet was still there when we finished, so I pulled it out with my pliers, and uh, I, I just kept it. Like, that was your chance to be done, but the bulletproof glass stopped it, so we'll just mm -hmm. hold on to this. And uh, shortly after I got back from that deployment, I, I was spending a lot of time with my cousin, Jordan. Um, she actually was the one that got me reintroduced to the Bible and helped me through a lot of a lot of issues um i'm very grateful for her but uh on her birthday i was trying to think of something nice to give her because she actually talked me down from putting a bullet in my own mouth at one point and uh, i wanted to give her something special for a birthday present so i polished up the bullet and had a jeweler cast it into a necklace and i said told her the story behind it. I'm like, I, I don't know who better to have this than you. And yeah. I was fortunate enough that she really appreciated the gesture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That'd be a crazy gift to get. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's just so many of your stories that, you know, that your wife sent and like that group text between us three. Um, and then going through like, uh, the longer version of, of your story on a couple other podcasts that I've listened to, and, and you've been through a lot. And I've recently started watching um, the Sean Ryan show. Um, his show's amazing. I don't know if you've seen that one yet, but it seems to be everybody in the military kind of speaks about the business or, or you know, it's almost like the same vocabulary. Um, I'm not really sure how to, how to word this. So I'm just going to wing it out of like pure curiosity for myself. As a, uh, it's just a normal person in society who has not seen or gone through what you've gone through. I understand what, what you're saying when you say you got out and you handled business. Is there, is there a reason why those words are used? Um, like, is it, is it out of like not wanting to talk about specifics is it out of respect kind of what, and, and that's just a very personal question that I've had of, you know, like why everybody in every branch, it's kind of almost generalized in, in this vague synopsis of, you know, what happened, what exactly is it that, that prevents those details from being spoken about? That's a very good question. <laughs> um, in my initial, my initial response to that would be, it is, I would like to believe that it is a very unnatural act to take a life. Mm -hmm. um, so if you can avoid telling people 
the details of that, it's easier on you. Um, I, I used to teach a leadership seminar to new non-commissioned officers. Um, I would always teach uh, uh, intro to warfight was, was the title of the class, the lecture. And we would talk about the different dynamics of war and things to be prepared for both mentally and physically. And the question would come up every time I would teach that class. What's it like to kill somebody? <laughs> um, and one, one time that I was teaching that class, it just so happened that on my way into work that day, um, I ran over a bunny. I, I ran over a rabbit. Yeah, and the whole drive into work, I just felt terrible about running over that rabbit. I, I was just—I I felt awful about it. I like hunting; like I'll go shoot a deer, and but I'll use every part of the animal. I just felt terrible hitting this rabbit, and not doing anything with it. And then as I'm prepping for class, prepping for my lecture, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, like, why did you feel so bad? about killing that bunny, but you would shoot somebody in Iraq and just go on with your life. And it just turned into this massive psychological thing for me where I, I was pondering. I still think about it. Sometimes. Sure. Um, and I actually used it as a point, like a, a point to, uh, or, or an example to point to in my lesson that day is like, you have to be mentally prepared that, you may take a life and it might not hit you until many years later that you actually did that. Um, and especially if you're religious, I, 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 religion might not be the right word, but I'm, I'm, I like to think that I'm as Christian as I can be on any given day. Um, and there are times that I wonder like, is God going to let this slide? <laughs> Yeah. Did, did I do it for the right reasons? Am I going to wind up where I want to be? Um, and, and I feel like anytime you speak the details of stories like that, it, it it's kind of hard to relive. Yeah. Yeah. I've, so to be transparent, like I'm not, I would never ask somebody to, you know, to, to divulge like the details of, of things like that. I feel like that's just, like gore porn at that point, you know, it's, it's right. not really necessary. I'm more interested in from your perspective of, of how you, you handled that because that was your nine to five that that was you clocking into work. And I feel like there's a lot of compartmentalizing that's done in the military of to where this is your mission. You, you did the mission. Good job next, you know, and you, you just keep moving on and you never really get a chance to sit down and, and think about what's happened and kind of like unpack everything. And so how do you deal with that now that you're, you're not in the active military and you have experienced some things coming towards you and things that you've done? Um, how do you unpack those compartments in your brain to, to kind of move forward? I'm in therapy. And I read the Bible a lot and I journal. Um, and to be honest with you, that is something 
that I'm probably going to have to keep doing until the day I die just to maintain my sanity for, for some of these instances. The big thing I do that actually makes me feel better about everything is volunteer work. That That's, that's my go-to. Um, and, and I think that's just my principle. And I think a lot of people in the military would relate to this is I, I joined the Marine Corps out of a principle of wanting, to, no matter how you skin it, right? I wanted the world to be a better place. And I felt like I could do something to do. It may be through violence, but at the end of the day, I wanted to do it because I felt like I could help make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. My time in the military is done. So volunteer work is how I'm And I'm hoping that leads me to a happier place. And sets a good example for my son. Sure. Yeah. I, uh, I know we haven't like dove too deep into, you know, like specific deployments and and instances like that. And, and to be honest, I, I'm not sure if that's something that like we actually have to dive into. I'm more, I am curious about one thing and then I want to get onto this next subject about coming home. Sure. Um, So I'm curious about you did, how many deployments were you on? Cause you were on quite a few. Yeah, um, what did we do? We did four to Iraq, one to Afghanistan, and one to Africa. Sounds right. Okay. So out of those, what would you say was the worst conditions, um, like the worst experience you've had? Like which deployment and why? Honestly, man. So with the exception of Africa, Africa was a saving grace. But all of the deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan had moments that would be in contention for the worst moment of my life. It, it, it would be very hard to pick a worst spot. My my retirement ceremony, actually, the, the retiring officer was my company commander at the time for one of my deployments to Iraq. And he was telling a story that <laughs> at my own retirement ceremony, I started tearing up. Um, and I was a more senior guy at this point, obviously. And, uh, we had an ambulance pull up to our base. Uh, a bomb had just gone off and it wound up killing and maiming a lot of children, basically. Jesus. And they brought the children to our base, um, because they were hoping we could do something for them. And the guy, a lot of the Marines that were there with me at that point in time had not been exposed to those kind of things yet. So my response was to pull them away from the ambulance and go in and get the kids myself so they didn't have to see the maimed and dead children. And (laughs) that was absolutely... I don't remember that event clearly. I have it so mentally blocked in my head. People yeah. tell me about that story, and there's times that I'm like, I can't believe that actually happened. Um, there are entire black spots on the phones that I don't remember a thing from. Um, I'd gotten back from one mission on one of my deployments to Iraq that um, I called my dad in absolute tears saying, I don't think I'm going to make it home from this one. 
I don't remember the mission that I was coming back from or that phone call to my dad. They totally blocked out repressed memory. Um, I know that's a very long answer to your question, but I don't know that I could pick a worse time. Yeah, no, that's that's actually the perfect answer. I, I feel like it's a very honest answer. Um, that, that, yeah, that's that's exactly what I was looking for. Is none of it really seems like it was going to the ballet. You know, it was it was all pretty much hell. Um, so knowing that, you know, besides Africa, the rest of your deployments were basically you signing up to go to hell. How the fuck do you come home? And and when I say that, I mean, uh, so I've had two or three other guys from the military on the show so far. Um, and it's all kind of been the common theme of, you know, you're in between deployments, you know, you're going back. It's something that you want to do. It seems like every guy is just itching to go back, to be with the boys, to be in the barracks and, and to be there. How do you make the transition of coming home knowing you're not going back? I feel like, and, and I don't expect there to be a black and white answer because that doesn't exist. I'm just saying you personally, you know, like what? Did, how did you experience coming home for the first time? Um and did you have like any traumatic experiences as soon as you got back? Uh, kind of what was your process looking like at that point? Um, there were, so there was an instance where um, after we'd gotten back from one of my deployments, there was a group of protesters that were, I don't even remember what they were protesting, but they were protesting something. I was just going to drive by, but they dropped the American flag on the ground. And I stopped my car in the middle of the intersection, got out, and <laughs> it, it got ugly real quick. Uh, picked up the flag, took it away from him, had some choice words for him. One of them came up on me. I put him on the ground real quick, and, and that was the end of it. And I, I don't even know if I was upset that they were protesting. I think I just wanted to fight some. Um, I got, I got robbed at gunpoint for a bottle of liquor, uh, after one of my deployments. Um, and I mean, I was in such a daze. I'd already been drinking. I, I went to, uh, the local Rite Aid down the street from the hotel I was staying in by a bottle of Southern comfort. And, uh, I came out of the store and this homeless guy pulled out a 38 special, held it to my face and said, give me your me your liquor i gave him the bottle he ran away across the parking lot tripped and fell and broke the bottle all over and i'm just standing there and i turned back around and went back in the store and bought another bottle like <laughs> the, the the ultimate point here being until i was ready to retire i don't know that i actually mentally absorbed the fact that i was back home i was either drinking heavily or at work training myself and the Marines for, for the next deployment. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that we were in America was just a circumstance. It, it was irrelevant. Almost. Sure. Um, once I made the conscious decision to retire, I was totally at peace with not having to go back. And, um, it didn't hurt that I was retiring at a point when there wasn't any major war. On it. Um, I didn't really feel like doing a deployment to Japan or something like that. It kind of seemed boring at that point after all the deployments I'd been on. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
So I was, I'd always told myself, I will stay in the Marine Corps until I don't like it. And I was at the point where my son was much more important to me than continuing my career. So I was done. I was totally at peace with that. Okay. So it seems, I'm trying to figure out how exactly to, to frame this because I've heard multiple stories of, uh, you know, while you're in Iraq and Afghanistan, a, a large uh, percentage of incidents were IED related. Um, yeah. And that, that seems to be a very constant thing that I hear uh, from guys that were over there. And the thing about the uh, the IEDs, the these explosives that are on the side of the roads, that they could be buried. You know, depending yep. on where you're at, they kind of adapt to, to anything to where I've even heard stories of they would knock out chunks of the curb and place them there and then put like a paper bag over it and paint it to look like the curb yep. uh, or like grocery bags, garbage bags, things of these nature. Um, are you, do you experience some of those things now being, being home, not being deployed in kind of looking out for, for things of that nature? Or were you able to set that down and be like, that's over there and I'm home now? No, I think I would be very surprised if it's not always going to be. Um, I think I'm just getting more and more, the, the more I go to counseling, the more I'm getting better at talking myself down from there actually being real danger around. Um, in Iraq, Afghanistan, yeah, they would, I mean, there were, they were putting bombs in dead animal corpses, you know, like nothing was safe over there. So you see a dead deer on the side of the road driving on the highway in Minnesota. You're like, oh shit, what's that? But getting your brain under control and, getting yourself to realize the reality of the situation is a, is a skill and it's a perishable skill. If you don't constantly practice it, it's, it's going to, it's going to hurt. Um, so it's something that just takes a lot of effort to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it, it's constantly on my mind. It's just a matter of how well you can control it. Yeah. I, I, I wish that there was a better answer, that there was a more straightforward answer to help out combat veterans and, and even non-combat veterans, um, especially, you know, from coming home, that it just seems like you guys aren't treated accurately or proficiently. Um, I know the VA, there's a lot of, of things available. It just, it seems like you should, you deserve a little bit more. Um, and so let's kind of take that into like this, this coming home type theme of, of everything and get into to what you've started. You wanted to help out and give back. And so you've kind of created this community uh, for veterans coming back and everything. Um, how does this start? Like, how do you even start the process of healing and helping others and in realizing that you are home? Well, I think helping others is healing. That, that, that's my, my personal take. Um, if you can help others in, a, in, in their hard situation, I think naturally is if you are a semi good human being, you're probably going to get some good feeling. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's, it's a healing process in my mind. And so ultimately the vision here would be 
we take veterans who have mental health issues and we take them out and have them help other people that are even less fortunate than themselves. Um, an example would be we're planning a trip to the Philippines to build a school for this village uh, that's literally in the middle of the jungle. Um, but we structure it the way a military guy would be familiar with, right? So before we actually fly to the Philippines, we, we all get together and we have what we would equate to a pre-deployment briefing. Um, you know, we sit down, everybody's assigned a task. There's a chain of command. Everybody knows who's in charge and what their role is. Then we fly over to where we're going. We're living with the people. Um, every morning when we wake up, we have breakfast together. We talk about what needs to get accomplished for the day. Every night when we're done, we, uh, we sit down, we have a debrief, just like we would after a patrol in Iraq or Afghanistan. But you don't have to worry about getting stabbed in the back while we build a school in, in a village in the middle of the Philippines. Um, so that, that was the concept for this organization, Peace for Warriors, that, that we founded is let's make something for military guys where they can go back on a deployment because so many of us missed that. We think, at least in our mind, it makes sense to us that we missed the deployments. Mm -hmm. I would speculate that what we really miss is the camaraderie and the fact that we have to rely on each other so much. So if I can recreate this in a safe environment where at the end of the mission, at the end of the deployment, we finish building a school and the local village is so happy that they throw us a feast and we get to go back with pictures and memories of something that's that we built rather than destroyed. I mean, who's not going to be helped by that? Yeah. I, I can't imagine somebody that's going to leave thinking, well, that sucked. I wish I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't. You know, see and it's it's all conceptual know. right now, and it's based off of um, my experience in Africa. That that was the one good memory I have of deployments, is um, or one positive memory, I should say, sure. is volunteering and helping people that were less fortunate than me, and I want to recreate that. Yeah, that's amazing. I. Uh... Yeah, I would love to do something like that. My my fiance got a chance to uh, when she was younger, she went to the Dominican Republic and helped install uh, like water fil water filtration systems. Um, so doing something like that, I feel like would be an amazing experience. And hopefully one day I'll be able to have the opportunity to do something like that. Um, especially doing things like that, kind of keep your hands busy, uh, keep yep. your mind busy. And I was hoping to take a, a step backwards because you had talked about uh, the, your cousin's necklace and putting a bullet in your mouth. Um, unfortunately, it seems like mm -hmm. you're not the only one um, that, that has a similar story to that. Yeah. And it does seem like veteran suicide is, is a massive problem. Um, so if you wouldn't mind kind of walking us through like leading up to like you sitting in your car with that pistol and, and what kind of brought that on to maybe see if somebody else is experiencing the same thing and, and how you were able to kind of turn away from that and use your cousin as an outlet and, and get away from that. Because I, f I feel like the last figure I heard was like 22 or 20 something. Yeah, like I think. I think 22 is the standard that most people, um, I, I hate to say it like this, but most most nonprofits that try and assist veteran suicide, they're going to advertise 22 a day. 
Yeah. Um, I've seen figures as high as 44 a day. Um, and then I've never seen anything lower than 19. So it's definitely, um, it, it's plaguing our rates. Yeah. Um, fortunately, it's not always just once you come home, you know, there's also instances of it being while you're on deployment, you just can't, you know, handle the situation or whatever, you know, that that situation is. Um, I feel like a lot of us have gotten to a point in time to where we've thought about it. And it's almost yeah. like a weak point to even to talk about. Yeah. Um, but it's been my experience that if it's if we feel like it's a weak point and makes us look weak, that's actually the thing to talk about to make you the strong person so you can help somebody else in, in kind of going through that situation. So if you wouldn't mind kind of just explaining a little bit about your mindset and kind of what led up to that and what made you make a phone call? Because I feel like that's the biggest thing is most people don't do is we have, you know, these things in our pockets that we can <laughs> yeah. access thousands, millions of people. And in the time where we need them the most is the time to where we're most afraid to make that phone call. Yeah. Um, so if you could just walk us through that just briefly and, and kind of get into your organization a little bit after that. Yeah. So I, uh, I'd got just gotten back from, I don't even remember which deployment it is. Um, probably my third, maybe my fourth deployment. Um, so my cousin Jordan and I, We'd played together a few times when I was five, six years old, very young. And then her family moved to Idaho. Um, and we'd, we'd lost touch. Um, I'd gotten back from this deployment and I found out she was finishing her doctorate in chemistry at UC Irvine. And I was stationed down in California at the time. I was um, very into boxing at that point. And there was a Floyd Mayweather fight that was going to be on. Um, so I randomly hit her up on Facebook. I don't know if you remember me. Um, I'm your cousin, Dan. We haven't seen each other in like 20 years. But Floyd Mayweather's fighting this weekend. And I'm going to Hooters to watch it. Do you feel like going to get in some chicken wings? <laughs> and uh, lo and behold, she, uh, she messaged me back. She's like, yeah, that would be great. I haven't seen you in forever. We went to uh, we went to watch the Floyd Mayweather fight at Hooters. <laughs> um, we get uh, I go to drop her back off at her apartment after the fight, and she's like, "It's pretty late. You got like a four hour drive to get back to the base. Uh, do you want to just crash here for the sure?" So I crashed at her apartment. Woke up the next morning and said goodbye, and got in my car, and I I. I, I just remember sitting down in the car thinking, I'm done. I, I don't even know what the trigger point was at that point. I, I was just done. And I put the pistol in my lap, chambered around, and I stared at it for a couple minutes. And it was, while I was staring at it, I swear my entire life was running through my head in that two minutes. I remembered thinking about telling my preschool teacher I was going to be a Marine. No, not a GI Joe. Um, memories with both my parents. And the last thing I remembered was going out and having a, a legitimately good time with my cousin that I hadn't seen in like 20 years the night before. 
picked up my phone and called her. And all I said was, hey, I'm still in the parking lot. Can I come and talk to you about a couple things before I head back? Yeah, come on in. Um, and I went back into her apartment and I just had a complete nervous breakdown. <laughs> and it was the, but it was the first time that I had ever started telling stories about the departments. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, prior to that, there were times that I'd come home on leave and there was a wedding I came home for from one of, one of my other cousins had gotten married and I was home on leave and we'd gone to the wedding and I was putting them back at the reception. They, they made the epic mistake of having an open bar at their wedding reception. <laughs> <laughs> Been to a few and, of those. <laughs> and uh, I was I was thrashing. I'd got, I got split a hotel room for the night with my parents. And I was on one bed and they were in the other. And they told me a few days later, they were like, yeah, you were absolutely thrashing like having terrors in your sleep that night, but me and your dad were scared to wake you up. (laughs) And I was just like, Oh, that's weird. Like never talked to anybody about this stuff until I met or reconnected with my cousin. And that's when, that's when the suicide stuff really started dying down. And I have to equate that to actually starting to talk about things. Mm Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. I uh, I have a close buddy who is a Marine, um, and he's going through some issues right now. And mm-hmm. uh, so we go to the gym fairly often together, and, and he always uh, conceals, conceals and carries. And yep. we were in the locker room getting changed, getting dressed, and he takes his shirt off, and I, I notice that he doesn't have his pistol on him. Mm-hmm. So for him, that was just a very strange thing. Um, you know, like I, he's a very second amendment, you know, type guy. Um, and so about 20, 30 minutes later, you know, I asked him, I was like, yo, are, are you okay? And he was like, why? And, you know, just putting some things together and just checking in with him and making sure like, are you okay? I've been in situations to where I don't feel safe by myself having certain things with me. And so just kind mm-hmm. of checking in with him, um, I feel like that happens a lot and people don't do those check-ins. Um, they don't make those phone calls and how do you handle those things? How, like, I'm not, I feel like I had a completely different question on, on how to ask this, but it's, it's just a very difficult, uh, like situation to talk about because a lot of people are afraid of talking about it and not feeling safe, having a pistol in your own, on your person anymore. Is that yeah. something that you that you deal with now um, or that you have friends that deal with now? And, and how would you personally handle those those situations of being close to a person that that's afraid of, you know, of taking their own life? Because I, I just remembered where this was going. Um, his answer was no. You know, like, I'm not OK. I'm going through A, B, C, D, all the way up to Z. And, uh, but it's close. I just, I need to have, you know, this barrier. And he said something that, that struck me that I wanted to, to correlate to you to see if it was the same thing is he was like, well, suicide's not an option. I'm Christian, you know, and because of his faith in God, he believes that suicide is a, a one way ticket to hell. Um, yep. has that 
and you getting your faith back and getting back into the Bible and in the church community and everything, was that also a, uh, like a stopping point for you of it's not an option or at that time, was it, was it completely different? I, 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 different flavors, right? I, I was always Christian. I just had a, uh, there was a long time I felt a certain type of way about the way God does business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there, I mean, there were, there were instances um, earlier in my, my career where I would, I would be drunk howling at the moon. Right. And I would literally look up at the sky and say, I'm ready to fucking fight you. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I was, I was furious. Um. I, I would argue that no matter how Christian you are, if you're breaking habits, nobody's beyond it. We're, we're human. Mm-hmm. You, you know, nobody's beyond it, no matter what your belief system is. If you are at the point that you're so depressed that you're going to break routine, I mean, putting a gun to your head is breaking routine too. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, and I mean, every day I text somebody just randomly going through my phone. I have hundreds of contacts in my phone and I'm texting somebody every day. How are you doing today, man? Just random. And there have been times where people have just called me back and unloaded on. There was one, uh, one time when I actually stopped somebody from killing themselves and had them committed. They're still pissed at me about it to this day, but they didn't kill themselves. You know, I mean, at this point in my life, 20 years in the Marine Corps, that entire time was wartime. I've lost more friends to suicide than I have to combat. <laughs> we have done more of the enemy's job for them than the enemy. Has. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that tells you everything you need to know. If, if you know people that have any kind of mental health issue, if you're not calling and checking on them randomly, I hate to say it like this, but you're not much of a friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? A, yeah. That was a lesson that, that I had to learn. I, uh, so I, before rehab, I, I was a manipulative piece of shit at one point in time in my life. Uh, <laughs> just throwing that out there. There's plenty of people on this planet that have horror stories of me. Um, I've dated some women that I have no idea how I got them and they've put in more effort than I was willing to do. And I treated them like shit. I was in a dark, dark place, no excuses. That's who I was at that time. Um, fuck, I lost my point, but it's just in, in having to do that change, you know, and be cognizant of exactly what you're doing and reaching out to people. Cause I was so used to the only time I would call you is if I wanted something. Or yeah. if I needed something, the only time my phone rang is if I had something of value to you. Um, it never crossed my mind that I was the value, you know, or that just having a conversation was enough. You know, it, there didn't need to be an exchange of goods or favors or anything like yeah. that. It was just the conversation. Um, and so now I'll randomly just like check in on friends and see how you're doing. And at first it was uncomfortable. It was, it was very uncomfortable of just like, hey, how are you doing? Are you okay? And actually mean it, you know, it, it wasn't something that I was used to doing. 
is that something that you feel like you can relate to or is it just a very natural instinct for you to to check in on people and and kind of go I, I would say the uh the thing that I feel the military does real well is build camaraderie with people that would have otherwise never been friends, right? Walking through the barracks on a Friday night is like going to 14 different nightclubs in, in one building. You know, you got the country guy living right next to the inner city guy living right next to somebody that listens to emo music, whatever, you know? Sure. Um, so the camaraderie is naturally built. It took me a long time to gain the maturity to understand what to do with that, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Uh, because there is, especially you gather a bunch of late teen and early 20 people, guys who were probably not college bound anyway, and then give them this ego boost of you are the greatest warriors that mankind has ever seen, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, that's not really fostering an environment for people to talk about their problems with their peers. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, to this day, and I, I, I used to teach this during some of my lectures too, when I was teaching the leadership seminars, if your buddy is having a bad day, what is your go-to? You're going to take him to the bar, load him up on alcohol, which is a depressant and tell him everything is going to be okay. It, it's counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, so the maturity took a long time to develop, to realize, well, I don't need to just take this guy to the bar after his girlfriend dumped him or after we got back from a deployment, and he had a rough go at it or whatever the circumstance is. What I need to do is randomly call him, make sure he's doing okay, have a legitimate conversation with him, not just surface level talk. And if he's not doing okay, you might have to do the thing that might hurt the relationship in the short run and tell somebody else about it so he doesn't die. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are hard conversations to have in those in those vulnerable conversations are very hard to get to um, because we are so apt to just say, yeah, I'm fine and, and continue, you know, and so this kind of leads into uh, to, to the organization that you've created um, and kind of wanting to help veterans out once they get back home. And I wish there was more of that. You know, I wish there were more organizations that did things like that, because I personally know some veterans that could use it, you know, that could use that outreach because me as just a traditional civilian, I can't relate. I, I, there, my trauma is different from yours. You know, mine is in my childhood. You guys have seen shit that I don't want to see, to be honest. It's, and, and you've experienced it. And so the only people you can talk to are people that have experienced it to be able to, to understand what you're going through. And so you started this, this foundation. Um, what triggered that? And kind of how, well, how does this thing get going? I, I, uh, my, my fiance, Danny, um, I think we were on our first date. Uh, I, on our first date, I just had a friend the day before that had killed himself. 
Um, I'm talking to her and for whatever reason, I think that's appropriate talk for a first date, right? Right. <laughs> but I, but I'm <laughs> You're definitely getting lucky tonight. <laughs> that story up. <laughs> but I'm telling her the story. I'm explaining it. I wish I could figure out something to help these guys. Like I'm, I'm retiring soon. I want to figure out a way to help these guys that have PTSD. I know what they're going through. I just don't know what to do. She's telling me about all the volunteer work she's done. Um, she's, I mean, she's not even 30 yet. And she's been to like 20 different countries volunteering and everything, like all over Europe, um, several places in Asia, like just goes all over the place and volunteers everywhere she goes. Mm-hmm. Um started having me think about Africa and my experience there. And we, we just kind of put it together. Like, let's take these guys. We'll, we'll organize it the way a deployment. And we'll take these guys on volunteer trips. And it'll be a familiar structure, but it'll be a positive experience instead of them getting shot at. And the big, big precursor here is we didn't want to recreate another program that already exists. Right. And not that there's anything wrong with these programs, but, you only need so many people giving away service dogs, you know, sure. um, you, you only need so many people that are going to help fund uh, uh, psychotherapy and drug trials and all this other stuff. I'm trying to think of something unique that hasn't been tried before into the best of our research. Nobody's tried this approach before where we just take them out and try and take them to do something that is going to help other people. Um, like, like I'd mentioned before, Typically, from my experience, people that join the military are service-oriented. They want to help other people. Whether or not the military is the place to do that is a completely different story. But the the, the principles, for the most part, the foundation is there. So if we can take them somewhere where they can build a school and put a smile on a kid's face, the organization piece for warriors wants to try and help them do that. Um, and I think conceptually... It makes sense. People naturally like to give back to other people. It makes them feel good. Mm-hmm. Right? Getting shot at shooting other people doesn't make you feel good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that that that's the concept. And the, the really nice thing about it, too, is and I, I'm definitely guilty of letting things get away from me sometimes. But I'm thinking in my mind, like, OK, get a proof concept that this works for veterans. I mean, we can apply this to other communities, too. Um, kids that were abused in the household. Let's show them a brighter side. You know, women that are coming from battered homes and don't don't have any trust for people because they were abused in the household. We can develop a program for them also. I, I'm hoping veterans have been innovators forever, right? Um, veterans created the Internet. Veterans created Domino's Pizza. Like there are all kinds of different things oh, that we've innovated in life. If we can innovate a program that can help people completely separate from what's already in existence, I mean, we can expand that to any kind, any community that needs help when it comes to mental health. And that's what my hope is. Grand, grand vision. But I mean, if you don't think big, it's never going to happen. Yeah, no, you, you almost have to be afraid of your dreams coming true to some extent for them to for them to be big enough for you to want to to chase something like that down. Right. Um, 
So you said helping people. I wanted to bring up uh, that during rehab, one of our the experiences that they kind of teach you is is giving back to the community. So in the place that I went to rehab, we were we went to meetings every single night, um, but we had to get phone numbers from people. And so people would come give us ride outs uh, and it, it forced you to create a community of people, you know, to get kind of like to not think that you're too good to ask for help, you know, and, and forced to to call these people to get help to be ride outs and stuff. And then afterwards, it's kind of encouraged for you to do the same thing, to kind of give back. And it's been my experience that for me to go pick somebody up from rehab and take them to a meeting and, and I don't really go to meetings that much anymore. Um, but when I did and I would bring somebody and just buying them a cup of coffee and a pack of cigarettes, you know, like just being able to kind of be that light for somebody else, it, it not only kept me sober for that day, you know, I guess would be like one way as the program would describe it, but it also gave me like a purpose, you know, yeah. of like I have to have my shit together. I have to mentally be prepared because this guy's in a situation that's not as good as the situation that I'm in. And my problems are by no means as bad as his are at this point, you know? Um, and so to kind of be that positive light for him, it forced me to be in a better mindset and to, yep. to give back, you know, that was something that definitely stuck with me um, that I try to do consistently. And, and even in this podcast and trying to just share other people's stories of, of trying to have those vulnerable conversations, you know, that other people are afraid of having, or if you can say something that one person hears, it could, you know, send, send them down a positive spiral. Um, yep. So that's definitely something that is, I think is amazing that you're doing. And uh, I'm going to 100% try to blast the, uh, the website and everything down in the show notes and try to do some snippets for it to see if we can't get more people to hit you up and, and go build these schools um, I appreciate it. There's just one final thing that uh, that you brought up that I'm guaranteeing you didn't expect. And this is more of a uh, uh, you and me type conversation because you okay. said that your fiance isn't 30 yet. Um, so we're about <laughs> work. So, and, and so the reason why I asked this is because we're about the same age. Um, I'm 38 and my fiance is also not 30 yet. Um, <laughs> And so I've experienced my version of PTSD um, through like just violent, brutal beatings and being locked up in the basement for days and starved and like all of that shit. And I've realized that a lot of the things that happened to me, I was never able to drop them. Um, and I will take things as like, like a simple argument and I can see disrespect in an argument that's not intended. And I will blow that argument up into this large, you know, multi-day event to where it's almost like I, I need to run from this relationship because of the problem that I've pretty much created myself. Um, and so I know that's not necessarily an age thing, but with age does come experience. And so that's, that's something that like, uh, my fiance and I are trying to navigate, but I'm very curious as to like, if you're able to talk about um, like PTSD in relationships and how you yeah. and your fiance actually handle that and navigate it. And if, if you're able to, to improve on instances that you may not be so proud of, you know, things that like you don't want to talk to people about 
um, arguments and, and such to make sure that those don't happen again. Um, yeah. Yeah. What do you, what do you kind of go through for that? I have, I, I will say I've had, uh, she tells me I'm getting better at this. Um, there are times that I believe her and times that I don't, <laughs> but there there's, there's occasionally there's, there's times where just the way she approaches a topic or, if we're in a meeting and she starts telling, say, saying something to somebody that I wish she wouldn't have said because it's giving them a little too much information and just my lack of trust for people um, can be, can be a trigger in itself. Right. Um, but I have started explaining to her, this is why I was upset. And this is the background of it. And I'll actually start telling her stories from my career and it, she claims I, I, I want to believe her. Sometimes I feel like I might just be a dick. <laughs> um, but she 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 seems to believe that um, it's helpful for her to understand where my where where the mentality is coming from. The other thing I really had to learn to do though, and this took a while, and feel like I'm I do feel like I'm improving in this area, is if she does something that puts me on edge, I'm not having the conversation about why until I've cooled down. Uh, and just having the patience to let everything settle so I'm in a calm and good place before we start having the conversation so it doesn't turn into a full-blown fight. Because um, there's no need for that. There's nothing healthy about fighting with somebody. Having a good conversation about why something happened it is perfectly perfectly doable if you just wait until everybody's calm and level-headed. Uh, so I, I think that was the big thing that she's learned a lot about me and uh, I've learned a lot about myself because she's so unbelievably patient with me. <laughs> yeah. It is just making sure that as things happen where we have disagreements, whether it's about the charity or just about our relationship, um, because she's, unfortunately for her, she's the vice president. I'm the president. Uh, <laughs> there, there, there's got to be a little bit of patience before we're going to have discussions and explain our points of view. And she's brought me a long way on things too, in terms of, you know, at some point you got to trust some people. I'm sitting here like, why does that have to be a thing? Uh, <laughs> and, and I mean, but she's, a blessing for sure. Her and my son have brought me along. And then on top of that, being blessed with great parents. Um, I wouldn't be here if I wasn't for my support system. So I'm grateful for them. Every day. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. It's a, uh, it seems like as men, we are we're almost pre-programmed to, to accomplish goals and to, to try to find the fastest way to that end point, to the, to the finish line. But when it comes to relationships and especially in, in yours and mine of having, you know, that engagement with a wedding coming up and that's a forever thing, there is no finish line. And yep. cognitively, I don't think that we actually think about that, you know, to where it was like, this isn't something that you can run away from. You have to fix it. And your past does kind of follow you. And sometimes you have to kind of just step back and stop listening to yourself and start telling yourself what to do. And it's that kind of distance and that gap of, of where the issues are and of 
of trying to fix things. And so, um, yeah, I appreciate you talking about the the relationship stuff because that's that's always something that a lot of guys are not too fond of talking about. You know, especially guys that have PTSD, and we have moments yeah. to where we're not proud of of things that we've said or done, and and you know, to know that like you you acknowledge that and that you're working on it, and you know, I'm sure she's telling you the truth and that you are getting better. It's just it's <laughs> it's, it's in our it's in our nature to not believe people. So yeah, I would try to believe her since she's the one that actually matters. You know, if, you, if you're getting better. So yeah, I would, I would definitely try to try to start listening to her more. And you said that you're the president and she's the vice president. I feel like that's only on paper. She oh, absolutely. She, yeah, she's probably the one that's actually running the ship. But uh. No, I'm actually really glad that you brought up the relationship piece, though, because I, I do, I think people give it a lot of surface value in terms of relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I feel like that's a forgotten portion of recovery for regardless of what your what your mental ailment is, is if you don't have solid relationships and a good support system, you're, you're literally just making it harder on yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like talking about your experiences have brought you two closer together? Because I've I've known guys that they just shut that part off and they don't want their significant other to to experience that pain or to know that it exists. And they're almost protecting them uh, I, from that. Information. I do. Yeah, I do think that it, it definitely strengthens the relationship. Um, it's difficult for me in the moment, but every time I've told her something after, after it's all settled and everything, I've felt better about it. Uh, actually, one of the things I did was I, uh, I'm, I'm working on a book uh, or it's just a book of stories, right? And it's more therapeutic for me. I don't know that I'm actually published, right? Uh, but I gave her a copy of it. And she really appreciated it because it kind of breaks down everything from my first memory all the way through um, with some of the darker moments in my life. And it gave her a lot of perspective, Mm -hmm. Um, which, I mean, if she knows where I'm coming from, it's just going to make the relationship easier. Right. Yeah. Um, So yeah, it's, it's been great for me. Um, Not always easy, but definitely a good exercise in mental health. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad we brought this up. I, I feel like more guys need to need to hear that. Need to acknowledge that, you know, the the PTSD, no matter where the source comes from, it is a bag that we carry with us. And unfortunately our significant others get that explosion. Um yeah. you know, they're kind of they're around for our worst moments and it's not our proudest moments. Um but it gives us something that at least we know we have to fix, which kind of creates those end goals. So yeah. in the end, it all kind of works out. But all right, man, this uh, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. I know we could have dove in for hours into little <laughs> aspects of things. Um, I, I do want to link another one of your uh, your interviews with the the Valor community. Um, I keep forgetting what it's called, um, but I want to put that down there just in case somebody does want to dive a little bit deeper into some more of the combat stories and things like that that we didn't cover. I was just kind of more interested in you and your story and 
and kind of how you are now helping people out and trying to create this foundation and everything with the backstory and whatnot. But uh, where can people find you um, online and also reach out to the foundation to kind of see if they can join and gain support and help out or. Yeah, absolutely. So we're on Instagram and Facebook at peace for warriors uh, spelled out F O R. And then uh, our website is www.peace, the number four warriors.org. All right. And I will put that all in the show notes down below. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll do as much as I can to try to get that out and even text that to to my local friends that I know could that could use the support as well, because what you're doing, I think, could, could be a game changer, you know, to, to do something with positive intent for a positive outlook is I don't I don't see how it can go bad. So definitely keep going for it. And uh, thank you for taking this time out of your day to sit down and, and have some of these conversations. I know some of them are pretty hard to get through. So um, tons of respect for you, what you do. Uh, very excited to to see your story unfold on social media and and see you grow as a father, as a leader. Um, finally, get to put some of those leadership courses to use in the real <laughs> world of uh, of raising a kid, which sounds scary <laughs> as hell to me. So good luck with that. Amazing. And, uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, other than that, it's uh it's been a pleasure getting to know you and talk to you and, and hear your story. And uh, I cannot wait to to share this out. And hopefully, we can. Even if we can just help out one person, it, it's more than worth it. So that's it. Again, thank you for coming on. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's it. I think we covered most no. of it, man. So thank Thanks you. for having me, Rob. I appreciate it. This was awesome. Yeah, definitely. So, all right, man, I will uh, I'll let you go. And uh, when this comes out, hopefully we can we can help save some people together. So sounds good, brother. That'll be it for today. And uh, yeah. Thanks for joining in, guys. Until next time, see you.